Good evening and welcome to another edition of RPG Coast to Coast. I'm your host, Brian from Lost Relic Industries, and our guests will introduce themselves in order of initiative. Hi everyone, I'm Alice Peng, aka Lala Twiddle, and I am the co-host of Babies with Knives podcast. Hi, I'm Glenn Welch, uh, better known as just Mr. Welch. I uh, uh, run the uh, Welcome to Mastara uh, YouTube channel, as well as the Mad Musings, and now the Cyberpunk uh, Welcome to Night City YouTube page. I'm Andrew Ragland, uh, Fantasy Games, 1879 Steampunk, and also uh, Wandering Beekeeper, uh, developing the dynamic balances mechanic in the first game under that mechanic, Fenlicha. Uh, which uh, we'll get into later. I am uh, Rob Conley, a Batnet at the game. I produce uh, maps and adventures. Uh, I'm Alex McCreese of Autark, uh, lead designer of Adventure Conquer King System and our new superhero RPG Ascendant. Okay, um, well, Lala, do you, would you like to kick us off with the topic? I hadn't had a chance to think of one, so why don't we check <laughs> the next one first? Okay. So, did, I'm sorry, did you say the next one first? Yeah, jump to someone else first. Okay. Unless hey, I can Glenn? choose from the list already picked. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I was kind of come up one. I was trying to come up one to order off menu. Um, since I, my mind that wasn't getting it picked was uh, matching art styles to your game. Oh yeah, that's a good one. So I didn't quite hear that. I'm sorry. Oh, trying to match the right art style to your game. Art style. Art or style. Right. Like, if you were going to be doing a silly game, you would be doing more cartoonish art. And oh, art it, style. Okay, I got yeah. it. I'm sorry. I'm hard of hearing. Hard of hearing. It's okay. <laughs> uh, no. I was, like, I do my Mad Musings channel, and I review one game after another. And uh, one thing I noticed on some of the less successful games is the art doesn't match up. Um, the one I was looking at was uh, Tefra. Anybody's familiar with that game? I'll take that as. And, uh, yeah, uh, I recently looked at Tefra. Right, and the original art was just all over the map. They had some a, a like a, a snidely whiplash cartoonish character for some, and the rest of it tended to be anime or even realistic. And they were trying to go with a fantasy steampunk, but the you know, an anime style doesn't really didn't capture the steampunk. It really doesn't. Well, as I recall, they also have of have very fantasy elements, and so some of that anime is really because they have the accentuated elven ears and the uh, accentuated uh, V chin. But it was because they, they had a style that was a lot better than they switched to another one. It was it, the multiple styles hurt it. I one don't disagree. The, one of the things we did with 1879, uh, we were lucky enough to meet Don Higgins early on. And uh, 
we had Don do um, a couple of the professions pieces. And uh, when he turned in the aristocrat, uh, my wife looked at it and said, that's the guy. And we ended up making him the style lead because of his pen and ink uh, style. It, it works so well in a steampunk game. And one with um, some uh, odds and ends going on. I mean, let me just pop up this piece. This While is... he's doing... Go ahead. While Andrew's doing that, I have a question for you, Glenn, on your comment on it. Do you consider matching to mean that everything in the book should be one style? Or do you have, do you believe that there are certain bars that people have to uh, hit when dealing with specific genres? Because that I think is, uh, has always been a very controversial thing. If I'm doing this genre, does all the art have to be this one, uh, this particular style, not just one style? Well, no, because you can, you can match the style to different parts of the book. And that's, I mean, the, my, the book that I'm currently writing, uh, I use two primary artists. They have wildly different styles, but one is doing characters and the other one is doing scenes. And the, the scenes are, you know, the, the characters are more colorful to draw people's attention to them while the scenes are supposed to be there to tell a story. And I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't have the, uh, you know, a crowded scene for the character, but I'm also trying to showcase each individual character. So they get a lot more detail. I'm starting to ramble. Um, but no, you can, you can mix and match this, the, uh, depending on what chapter you're doing. Yeah, going with a, uh, a more simplistic style in your combat chapter, for instance, can get a lot more the idea of motion and of uh, how the, the system flows. Whereas in the sample characters, you want the richer detail because that's what your players are going to be looking at, deciding whether or not they want to play this character. The, the aristocrat that I just put up, uh, the elven aristocrat, was the first of the professions Don turned in. And my wife and I looked at that and went, this is the guy. This is the guy that we want doing this book because he had the pen and ink style that was so popular in the Victor in the late Victorian era. We're into the Gilded Age with 1879. Um, and the level of detail that went into the dress is just an amazing thing uh, and, and we looked at this and went, yes, this is, this is the, the look and feel that we want. And it, I agree with Glenn. It's absolutely critical. This is, this is putting me in a bit of a bind with uh, Finlicia because I don't have an art budget. And so I'm trying to find maybe some public domain art that's got the right mood, but it's being really difficult. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had to really scrounge for the Majestic Waterlands because I had little to no uh, art budget. I even included uh, two pieces of my own. And let's just say, I can maybe, I can draw maps. Art, you know, draw art is, is not not so good. But the, the thing is, for somebody, it's like a talent when a publisher or a publisher slash author is able to 
put together a book and all the art is, lack for a better term, harmonized with the theme of the chapter or the theme of the book. And uh, for me, what I did, because I'm not an artist, and I, 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 I'm a, my training is in technical writing, clear and consistent and concise presentation of the material to convey the concepts that you want. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I know I needed art, so um, the so what I like, so I took what I liked about uh, you know I have been playing for you know thirty years, and at the point when I first published, and and so what I knew at the out of all the books that I liked the best that fit with that resonated with me uh, was the black and white style that Columbia Games use for their heart. Now, um, when I was doing uh, Majestic Waterlands, the, they were in between uh, artists, and I knew I couldn't, he was a professional artist, I knew I couldn't uh, uh, afford his rate, but then I found these guys, the Forge, and not only they drew the style, the black and white style I liked, they primarily focused on landscapes, which is what I'm about. You know, Black Mars, the Waterland. I'm primarily about the setting as opposed to the people like you would need if you were like writing about a book of NPCs or RPG. There would be sections where you need a lot of people or monsters. So, so I gravitated to what I liked, and I just hunted through drive-through RPG stock art section until I found you know people I can afford and people who drew you know and uh, there's this guy named Posas that that drew some pieces that that were good for my my stuff Uh, but pretty much all my stuff is from the forge so that's that's what I did not being particularly art savvy (laughs) myself yeah, uh, with 1879, we've been fortunate enough to have an art director who has a grasp of the world and the and is able to get that unified vision into the visual presentation. Uh, and I think that's been a, a, a really major uh, improvement over the the player's guide, which I art directed and was basically just grabbing whatever public domain stuff I could from the late 1800s for filler art because we didn't have quite enough to, to, you know, break up the text. That was a bit of a challenge. I was very glad to pass that on to somebody who knew what they were doing. I I used uh, friends that uh, I knew for a while, or I was introduced to, and uh, I took advantage of the uh, the exchange rate or the low cost of living in Greece for my best artist. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the art I put up with the uh, Viking and the uh, tribal per- and the uh, the tribe trading that's uh, that's Rubus. And my problem is, is the book that I'm writing actually is done. I'm just waiting for the last bits of art. Uh, most people know. Younger people know the game, the setting from the uh, video game, which has nothing to do with the RPG. And the older people know it from, you know, know the RPG and not the video game. So I had to uh, try to mix and match the styles. Mm-hmm. 
So the the Heldonic Knight at the bottom is done in a more anime style because it was a you know it was a Capcom beat 'em up, so they tend to look more anime ish. But for the chapter art, I used uh, Rubus's more realistic art. Uh-huh. So uh, another pl- another source of art is often sometimes your favorite artist for Patreon. And you can get on there, subscribe, and it's a lot less expensive than trying to buy it uh, outright. For example, I got a wonderful set. Like I'm up to 70 pieces for, and I posted a link to the Forge's uh, Patreon, but I'm up to 70 pieces. Now they're all landscape, but still, that's one of the best deals I ever made. To go back to an earlier point Glenn made, um, there's that unifying visual theme where his characters have one particular style carrying through, and his chapter hitters have a different style, but it carries through and maintains its own theme. So you have these almost like uh, themes in a soundtrack where they can play off each other, and when they do rise up in the score, the audience recognizes, oh, yeah, this is a thing, you know, we're about to see this character, or we're going to this setting, or whatever. Yeah. And uh, what was the book that I saw they did that? Oh, the uh, 7th C, uh, second edition, or the new edition, which the art was the best part about that game. (laughs) Didn't really look at it. I played 7th C 1st edition and enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, You can't fail. That was the biggest, that was the flaw of the game. It got boring because you literally could not fail. That's a problem. If anybody's looking for art, I am the administrator of the D&D Fantasy Art page. I don't make a dime off of it. But if anybody's looking for art, we've got 45,000 artists. Then a lot of them work on commission. And since oh, there's nice. a huge variety of talent level and experience, you usually can find somebody for a budget. That's awesome. Yeah. 45,000? 45,000. Jeez. I've, I've yes. chatted with some people on there too. Yeah. I, I mean, when you say a variety, um, there's, I, I've chatted with people that have like contracts with, um, you know, like HBO and stuff all the way to, you know, the person that's just starting out and they're a student and, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're poor, they're still building their portfolio. So it's definitely cool. I mean, like every style, everything. We have a contest that we run every two weeks, which is mainly just the prize is basically advertising. And uh, you pick a, you pick an old character from Dungeons and Dragons and uh, then everybody draws their version of the character. Usually people that don't have a lot of art, that's what we're aiming for. And somebody uh, won, and the winner gets to pick the next subject, and he picked Fist and Dantilus. And so everybody's entering art, and Todd Lockwood himself shows up, and he goes, hey, I, I, I remember drawing this guy for the very first time. Uh, here's my entry. It's some unseen uh, art that that never uh, TSR never printed print out because they used something else. But here's you know here's Fist and Dantilus from another angle. Can you post a link to your site? I don't see it. 
Uh, it's on Facebook. It's one of the Facebook groups. Yeah, I just I just threw it up. It's between the uh, guy riding a dragon and the uh, Minotaur Temple. That's where the link is. Oh wow! Yeah, I realized I actually am a part of that group. I'm like, wait, that group kind of sounds familiar. <laughs> um, yeah, I started it uh, January of last year. I had a thousand people, then I woke up one day and had ten thousand people join in one month. That's awesome. But uh, as for some beautiful art, there are a lot of games out there with that. Uh, so, you know, just uh, there's some European pieces uh, for. Uh, oh, gosh, my brain just backfired on me. Yeah. Oh, the Genesis. Gen I actually the uh, Genesis. That's what I was trying to think of. I recently got to see the art and the books for the Genesis. The production quality in them is insane. I don't even know how they managed to get that much in w and still not cost you a freaking fortune. With uh, Shadows of Esterin, um, they've got their artist their lead artist uh, just on the staff and constantly churning out art uh, for their, their as their job. And so when you look at Shadows of Estrin, you've got these two-page landscape spreads. You've got art on almost every page. It's just fantastic. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just throwing up art from the artist from the page that won the uh, fantasy art contest just so people can see the various styles and the talent of the artists. I, I think as independent creators, we have to, um, you know, we really always have to juggle between the design aesthetic that we might want to achieve and then the realistic sense of what our sales are going to be and what we're going to be able to amortize our art budget against. Um, I, mm -hmm. I often think of a good art budget as... Um, almost a quality signal. Like you're saying, I'm so confident in the quality of this product that I'm willing to invest X in it to make it look great. And uh, on some subconscious level, people are aware of that. And so they will uh, respond differently to your product than if it just had, you know, clip art or something like that. Um, even though, it, you know, it doesn't actually mean the game is any better, but it's a subconscious reaction. So I've always probably over-invested in art relative to the size of um, the acts audience but I was fortunate to hook up with a really talented artist and, you know, he, he shared my vision for the setting. So, um, and now I'm stuck because everyone expects it even when I can't make money. So. <laughs> and some well, artists give you a discount if you, if you provide them art, with, with artistic license, but, but most of the ones that people get on a budget are either from, uh, well, nations with a low cost of living. So Spain, Italy, yeah. Greece, um, and a lot of South American countries, you can get artists that will, you know, they're not, you're not paying them much, but what you're paying them in their country is a small fortune. Right. Yeah. That's true for character portraits as well. For people who want to get those done, I've gotten really amazing pieces for 10 American dollars that from American artists would have cost like 150, but going to what Archon said, uh, to what Alexander said, uh, 
you can see some of the amazing art in Ascendant on a, a video we did with him recently. And I definitely think that art sells. It's not just the fact that people have this unconscious thing, but when we go to game stores and, you know, as much as we say, don't judge a book by its cover, people do judge the book by its art. <laughs> we pick up the book, totally. we look at, yeah, we look at the cover art. We're like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Let's see what else is inside. And and when you open that book, if that art disappoints, you probably won't even start reading the lines. If the art is awesome, then you start reading a couple paragraphs here and there and flipping and going, hey, I'm going to pick this up. But if that art inside disappoints, nine times out of 10, people will just put it back on the shelf and walk away. When I worked for Reaper a long time ago, um, Ed Pugh used to go on his uh, talks and uh, I took notes and he said flat out, never skimp on your art budget because good art will save a bad game and bad art will kill a good one. And he's never been wrong. Yep. It's that's true. Why, yeah, very true. And it's why every time I work with a creator, I'm like, what art can you give me to show people to say, come buy your game? Because that's going to sell more than us, uh, our heads talking. You know who has this down uh, to a science is Monty Cook, right? Like, has anyone in the history of mankind actually played Numenera? No, but everyone owns it. Shush. <laughs> I, 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 I played it. I ran a review. I savaged it, but it was pretty. It's, it's very pretty. Game, but it's a very, it's a very pretty terrible game. <laughs> I, I would, I would take a little bit of a counterpoint to. Okay, there is a minimum level of art so you have to put some work into it and then you just can't put anything in your book and expect results however i think it particularly if you're not going retail you do though have to have a decent style which can be a part of art but your but your layout and, and what you do for your cover you can get if you if you don't have much of an art by uh, budget, you can get by by having a decent style, which, for example, which, for example is, uh, you know, like my Black Marsh cover, you know, which is basically an arrangement with my map in the center of it, but I made it evoke the Greyhawk, and people like the old Greyhawk folio cover, and uh, people responded to that, even though it didn't take much artistic ability to put it together. Art is also very subjective, and so what one person might think is amazing isn't necessarily to someone else. But to what Rob was saying, I have a writer who recently reached out to me, and he sent me a, PD, a free PDF of his book for review copy sakes. In the book, I will say that there's very little art, but he went above and beyond on trying to basically landscape it. Uh, there's very little actual art, but he he went and got artistic fonts that were very legible. He went and uh, did simple uh, sigils and drawings in, that you could do in Photoshop very easily and layered it throughout the book to give it a very strong style and made the whole book very artistic. So. It, it can be done in a lot of different ways, but you do need to keep that as, uh, the aesthetic in mind by all means. Yeah, especially with a lot of the stuff being people only selling PDFs. You know, there's no there's no book to pick up. So the you know a lot of the art is kind of gone by the wayside, especially for some of the you know the people that are just churning stuff out, or they just or recycle art. That's another thing. 
I would disagree on it being by the wayside. I know a lot of people that even buying the PDFs, they get outraged when they see recycled art because they're like, I I'm buying this book. I shouldn't be getting recycled art that I've seen in two or three other books. And uh, Brandon, who someday will join us, is one of those people. Yeah, that's that's put me in kind of a bind with Finlicia because, like I said, I just don't have an art budget. Um, I'm broke. I got nothing. Uh, I'm putting this thing out as a PDF with a under a Creative Commons license and just hoping that I can sell some uh, print copies and some PDFs and that it will start to distribute on its own to some extent. We'll, well see what happens. Well, Andrew, like I was just saying, one option that you can go with is just make sure that the aesthetic of it looks nice. So in the layout, maybe try and add, you know, a runic border given the flavor and the environment that you're trying to run. But give something that gives uh, that evokes the setting that you're going with. And since Druidic and such like that, Celtic, you can uh, easily get a sketch of a tree, inlay it into the middle of between two columns. You can um, put... You can put some uh, borders on it with very little art budget. Yeah, I've been thinking about doing something with uh, Ogham or something like that. Uh, because, you know, I've got an Ogham font that I can uh, play with. I've also been looking at some of the art that has slipped into the public domain. Did you see the cover image I posted a few minutes ago? Yes. I've also um, seen it elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the um, that cover painting is a gorgeous piece that represent that gives me the representation to the four seasons. It's also by a German painter from like the early 1800s, and this piece has been in the public domain for like 150 years. So it's just it's been it's become an obscure piece because it's old and it's was not a really famous uh, guy outside of a certain region of Germany. And so, uh, you know, it gives me something I can use that people probably have not seen before. I recommend, uh, if you're looking for 19th century pieces, particularly for fantasy, is, uh, look up the Romantic Movement. It's awesome. oh, I'm well familiar with them and also with the Pre-Raphaelites. Uh, I've, uh, yeah, I've got a, a pretty good I haven't had much luck with the pre lights. Oh, they've done some uh, interesting stuff. Of course, everybody's seen the accolade. Jeez, how many mems have been made out of that piece? But uh, I've actually gone back before the Romantic movement a bit um, and looking at uh, the early 1700s, late 1600s, and there's some really interesting artwork from that period that just isn't seen much anymore. It doesn't get the distribution. So it gives you... me... I'm sorry, so, go ahead. Okay. Are you trying to go for black and white or color inside? Oh, the interior is going to be black and white, no question about it. Uh, the cover is the only color image. If nothing else, I've got to keep my repro my repro costs down because if not, the the first half a dozen copies that are going to go out to the patrons are probably going to be printed off at Staples and um, <laughs> done as best I can. 
So an, another approach is to take the basically the travel approach and goes with something completely minimal, which is I post up. Um, this is a mock-up for a project I've been working off and on called the Majestic Stars. And there, mm-hmm. you know, I look at these guys and they, they do some really gorgeous science fiction art and put it undercover. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to compete with that with my budget. And I thought, you know what? How can I come up with something minimalist? And so I came up with this idea of a diagonal across the the thing and put the title put the title so what i've done is to give some serious thought to typography and to the type styles uh trying to get a uh, a nice clean layout that's easily readable and yet still have uh some contrast in the fonts i've gone with um a fairly old decorative font called folkard for my headers and then a, a newer uh, semi-serif lighter font called Allegrea for the uh, body text. And the contrast between the two, I think, uh, is, is holding up reasonably well. I don't know if you saw the piece that I just linked in, but that piece, that black and white piece, seems to match your cover <laughs> very well to me. I don't know if other people yeah, I, yeah, I'm the one that uh, put the clinking beer glasses on it. Ah, cool. Um, yeah, that's actually an, an interesting piece. I have to uh, have a look at that. Where, what's the source on that? Uh, I listed it. It's a uh, the piece is called Fig Trees, and it's the St. Dunstan Episcopal Church uh, drawn for that or something. And you can find a few different versions of that. Mm-hmm. I'll go get you the Google <laughs> link for it. Oh no, no problem. I can I can Google it for myself. I just thought you had a specific site uh, to recommend. One day I intend to break down and make a, a monster manual using nothing but Hermione's Bosch paintings. <laughs> oh boy! Yeah, the piece is called "Under the Fig Tree," I guess, and mm-hmm. it's a um, public domain uh, religious piece, so you can easily find it. We're also, like for 1879, uh, we're able to reach into um, a lot of books printed in the 1860s, 1870s. There was a big fascination with cryptids at the time. And you can find all sorts of wonderful pen and ink drawings that are now in the public domain of all the folkloric creatures of the British Isles. And we're leaning heavily into some of the more obscure folklore of, of, of Britain for 1879. Uh, find it, and finding a book full of Cornish cryptids was just an absolute treasure. Because now we've got source art, and we can always just do a redraw f- uh, from the public domain art to get it a little closer to you know, the, the style we're looking for. Thinking of uh, artists... Um, I posted a piece a little bit ago called, uh, that was of the Ripping Creeper. Finding the arti- an artist who can draw what you need can be a really critical thing. It's really easy to find an artist who can draw some huge, hideous monster with way too damn many teeth. But finding an artist who can draw an anatomically correct plant and knows the difference 
between a sepal and a petal. Um, Christiane Benedict did the creature art for 1879. I went and looked and, and found her. She hadn't done gaming art in years. Uh, she did the uh, art for the Blue Planet um, cre uh, critter book, Natural Selection, which I think is one of the finest creature books ever put out by a role-playing game. It's absolutely brilliant. She did the art for that, and, that's, and I went, okay... I have to find this artist and get get her to do the art for 1879 because I know f that she can do what I'm looking for. The, the, the plants of the Grovener world are much more dangerous in some ways than the creature than the animals, and I needed somebody who could draw plants well. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's him telling us it's time to move to the next topic. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> okay. I'm well, not expecting us to hit every topic tonight. We've got so many guests, but I wanted us to have a an opportunity for other folks to pick some things. Okay, where are we in the initiative? Uh, well, I skipped mine, so I'll take my hold. That's fine. Go for I it. I actually have... Um, Two topics that are tangential to each other, so I think we can hit it once, which, uh, pulling from the list, how should the industry respond to distribution chain shutting down? Will game uh, stores survive? And the um, tangential, the one that links up with that, in my opinion, is conventions are also a big way for gaming companies and such to be showing off their brands. And so with a lot of the changes going on, how do people feel that game companies and creators and such can change to get their voice out there, to get their products still out there and for people to see it. I think this show is one of those venues. Um, one of the reasons why I keep turning up here is to promote uh, my own independent project and FASA's pro uh, product lines. It's a way of getting it in front of people and understanding that you're not just selling the game, you're selling the people who are creating the game. You know, there, there's a, a connecting with fans thing going on there. So I think, gosh, you know, Tinkar's Tavern is, is, being, is being a vital link at this moment. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if the prototype, in my view, for much for possibly go going forward is the OSR. You know, we didn't have... I mean, a, a few OSR publishers managed to get a retail president, but by and large, the whole thing grew on the internet itself. And uh, yes, there are some OSR conventions, but again, most of us had to reach each other. Uh, most of us, for our daily week-to-week -week interactions, we have to use the internet which is too few of us interested in older edition compared to the wider hobby to rely on finding people. So the internet is it. I mean, I live in rural New Northwest PA. I mean, yeah, I could rope in a group and I have roped in people and successfully played swords and wizardry with them as well as other games. But I have one friend who's been here in a while with me. There's just two of us that we know of that we could in theory rely on uh, you know face to face everybody else we we interact with over the internet we have also seen distribution chains shut down before 
uh, when the collectible card bubble burst, uh, there were uh, distributors that went out of business because they were left with all these cards that they could not sell and they could not return for credit. Thank um, you, sir. There were, you know, distributors that went under. Be, uh, there were game stores that could not get books because the distributors had devoted their shelf space to cards and didn't have the shelf space or the money to stock books. We lost a lot of game stores. Um, we've been through this before. It took us, what, 15 years or uh, so to really start rebuilding and get the game industry back to what it is now. FASA want... was, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, please finish. No, FASA was there. Uh, one of the reasons why we took the deal that Tops offered us for Shadowrun and for, Mech for Battletech was we saw the writing on the wall. Um, some of the big, well-established game companies were going out of business. Iron Crown shut down. Mm -hmm. When Iron Crown shut down, yeah, the writing was on the wall. So I think it's going to be some lean times, but I think we've got a decentralized distribution network going now. As Rob was saying, we rely on the Internet, which we didn't have then. We still have all the game companies that you can buy from directly. The game stores themselves, a lot of them are not going to survive. A lot of them are going to go out of business. And this is a very sad thing, but it's happened before. Well, I yeah, argue, but... Okay, go on. Sorry, Rob. No, uh, no. I'll argue that game stores are a lot of game stores aren't going to because we've already been seeing in the last five or six years game stores pivoting and shrinking their RPG section because board games have been exploding while game uh, while RPGs uh, TTRPGs are on the um, are a fleeting tide at the moment uh, board games are on ev in everyone's homes so game stores that used to have half the store being ta uh, tabletop role-playing games have been shrinking one shelf at a time. My local game store has now gone from uh, down to a magazine stand. And then everything else in the game store is comic books, uh, figurines, or uh, board games. And the board game section keeps growing and growing and growing. And I that is true for a lot of places. I ran mm -hmm. a game store for a very long time. And uh, we had... They're the four pillars of gaming. You want board games, RPGs, card games, and war games because tastes fluctuate. Sometimes the board games sell, sometimes the RPGs sell. And you, you want to have something to catch when the bubble pops for each of them because games can fall out of favor just as fast as they rise. Uh, sorry, go on. No, I'm saying and crippling over specialization is a good way to lose your store if if you know what the players you know if what the players are playing suddenly they don't want to play anymore or there's a glut in, there's a glut of bad product for a while. Well, what I'm afraid of is every successful game store I have seen in this last 15 years has in-store gaming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, now as Glenn said. Is, is that your name, Glenn? Yeah. Yeah. 
But Glenn said, yes, you need to cover the four bases. That's for your inventory so you don't get stuck, you know, like the card people did. Hmm. But if you notice, okay, so what's the shift been? Okay, we've been shipped into board games, which is true. So people, so alongside card night, used to be you had maybe one RPG night and the rest of it was card night. But now it's like an RPG night, a couple nights of cards, and a couple nights of board games where people come and play board games. But it seems to me that, and this is what I'm afraid of, that most successful game stores now rely on having in-store gaming to generate the excitement and the foot traffic in order to people to, to circulate their inventory. And with COVID, the threat of COVID to that particular yeah. aspect, it's, I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't see yeah, how they're going to go forward. It shut down in-store gaming, which is a really major problem with Role-playing games, especially, getting people to play the game sells the game. Yes. You can have all the fancy artwork in the world. You can have the, the most amazing shelf presence. But getting people to actually play a demo sells the game. So a friend of mine does. He runs a, a game store up in... Um... Uh, up here in De uh, Frisco area, and he's had to close his doors indefinitely right now. Oof. And I know that's got to be hurting. And it's been, it it really makes me sad because it kind of goes back to the days of, you know, when I was in high school, You after high school, you'd go down to the bookstore, the game store, hobby store, wherever you, you know, it was that sold your games. Um, and there was something about, you know, something neat about that whole interaction and then what they've carried forward now is they've got that social like you said getting people to play the games uh so they set up game tables and events and uh the game store has become uh sort of that social sort of uh thing that that brings us together physically and we can't do it right now um and so that makes me really sad um on the other hand uh, one of the other things that somebody else had brought up to me a while back was one way of getting people to involved in the games or to see them uh, would be to do things like actual plays online. So again, we're relying on technology. It doesn't really give me a great solution for the game stores necessarily. Maybe the game store owners can participate in those sorts of things. You know, I, I mean, that's an option. Um, and then... Uh, you know, that might help drive some revenue, but it, if their brick and mortar is shut down, I don't know how that works. It's well, imagine, imagine if you're an owner of game store though, but say like you, you're like an OSR publisher on the side. Now, not game store owners, I know probably don't have time to do that, but that's what kind of like, I'm not saying they start into publishing, but you know, have that, you know, think about the OSR, or some of the other areas of the game. You got bloggers, you got, People, uh, Matt Colville, if that is the guy who does the videos with the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got you got people with a heavy online presence, uh, presence that are able to generate excitement. Can that be replicated at a local level? One of the things that really worries me about this is that the brick and mortar game stores are a major vector for new people coming into the hobby. 
that you know their friends go hang out at this place. They want to go hang out at this place and see what it's about. Uh, you don't recruit new players into the hobby at Gen Con. It's too expensive. Only people who are established players are really going to be going there, maybe bringing along a significant other. But, you know, it's mostly established players. The hobby has to have a continuous infusion of new players to survive. You know, old players age out. This is a, a fact of life. People so, burn. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, please continue. People burn out um, and, and they quit playing, they quit going. Without that continuous infusion of new players, the hobby itself cannot survive. And that worries me intensely right now. So, <clears throat> As we, uh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, uh, sorry, I thought you were done. Uh, I just wanted to address what Rob was saying about game store shutting down and what, uh, what Brian was saying. Just before COVID hit, I know that in the last year and a half, there's been a huge burst of game, uh, game stores that took out loans that um, to buy up next door and such like that to upgrade their gaming cafes, create these gaming bars and gaming restaurants and such like that. And a lot of these people are still trying to pay that off. So when COVID hit, these places are just suddenly disappearing and these people are in major debt. And that's scary because it's it was booming. And uh, I believe uh, Brian is in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? Oh, uh, no. No, I'm actually in uh, the Texas area. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. Well, I used to right. live in the San Francisco. Sorry, I thought you said uh, Frisco Bay. Um, but I used to live in San Francisco Bay Area until three years ago. And there was a there's a game store that, there that started a bar uh, not that long ago. And they were doing really well. They actually crowdfunded a lot of theirs rather than taking out the majority of their loans. But I know a lot of other stores that started following that trend, and most of them were going with loans. So when COVID shut them down, they're suddenly like, well, I'm in debt, and I'm not getting – I'm getting in a worse position than I was. Uh, as for actual plays online, um, yeah, I definitely agree that that helps. Uh, that's one of the reasons why Brandon and I do BWK. We are out there trying to basically – stomp on the pavement for you guys hit the pavement as hard as we can trying to show people how to play we also do teaching segments on don't be scared of the system guys it's not that hard here's how you play in easy breakdowns we even put together as many teaching tables as we can and we actively tell our players if you think you know someone that has never tried an rpg before and you think that they might like it bring them to our table so we do it online we actively pound the pavement and say bring somebody who's not a gamer that you think might become a gamer and yeah, we'll and I, be super newbie friendly. I want to point out that, so because of my youngest son, I was involved uh, with Boy Scouts a very short time ago. And uh, somehow they wound up knowing that I was a Dungeons and Dragons guy. And they started to come to me and ask questions <laughs> and talk about it. Hmm. So in turn, I, I, in our conversation, I also worked in, I worked in, how did they learn about? Seems like at a high, extraordinary high proportion. They all learned about it online, and then they went and asked their dads about it, or moms in some cases. And it turned out, you know, some of their parents still had role-playing stuff. So 
they started branch out for that, but there was a heavy online component that I wouldn't have guessed to be that would have been there ten years ago, which was the last time I was involved in something that had a major use component. Ten years ago, in the, let's say like 1998, I would say it was mostly word of mouth and. Just as you said, people go to the game store, they see what friend people are, hey, what's that neat thing? And they go. But it's, you know, my own kid, I'm surprised at some of the stuff he knows because he talked about it online. That's it's funny awesome. you should mention scouting. Um, when we lived in Chicago, uh, we were making our Earth Dawn campaign a centerpiece of our homeschooling. And ended up with several other homeschool kids joining our Earth Dawn campaign because our kids talked up uh, the thing to their friends. <coughs> and then our Earth Dawn campaign, the players went on to found a, tr a troop of the Sea Scouts in Chicago. And that, that troop of Sea Scouts, by the way, is still there. And I'm very proud of that. It's one of the major accomplishments our family's done. Uh, this troop of Sea Scouts registered with the Scout Council and actually had a boat assigned to them. And they did the, the maintenance in the dry dock and then in the summer took the boat out on Lake Michigan and learned how to sail. And they, you know, other people started joining the Sea Scouts and going, well, how did this get started? And the kids would tell them. It, it all came from the fact that we were playing Earth Dawn and our Earth Dawn party uh, had an airship, and in Earth Dawn, airships are magical, and you sail them through the sky. And we wanted to learn how to actually sail. And next thing we know, we got more players. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're in uncharted territory because it's not just you know one industry shut down; it's everybody shut down except, well, my job. Hmm. Uh, and you know, we have to see if you know, yeah, everybody's hurting, but it's everyone. So do we just, you know, does everything just? suddenly pop back on when, you know, will they finally say, okay, it's, it's safe to come out now. No. no. It's going to linger and we'll have to change our behavior, but we'll have a life again. It's just, <laughs> it'll be a, what some people say, a new normal. I think it's important that we keep in mind that we should, we're not trying to doom and gloom for anyone listening, but I think it's important for us to be evaluating on how we can pivot and adjust for what's coming and the new normal that is now and the new normal to come. And so looking at troubleshooting what is wrong with the industry and how we can keep our hobbies going right now is important. So one thing is we need to find new ways to bring new players in to keep the hobby growing. That's one thing we need to start looking at. And one right. of the things that uh, I think is contributing to that is the rise of online conventions, which are so much cheaper to attend than physical conventions. The fact that they're lower cost, and a lot of them are throwing free memberships at uh, anybody willing to GM for them. And is, they smell better. There's that also. No gamer funk. Oh my God. The gamer funk at the convention center in Indianapolis every year is one of the things that makes me regret Gen Con. But uh, yeah. Everyone talks about PAX flu, for instance. You know, it's already notorious if you go to a convention center, odds of getting sick are really high. 
so I, I, I think people are going to be even more scared of conventions uh, than they are of some other activities that they might more quickly return to. Like I could see people getting back to eating at restaurants, but I think conventions are going to have a rocky road ahead of them. I mean, I, I'd be frankly very scared to go right now. We're absolutely not going to Gen Con this year. Uh, we've already talked about it. And uh, Gen Con has not made an announcement that I've seen. But, uh, yeah, I will not be there this year uh, if it does try to happen. It's just too soon. We don't have it, – it's, it's not viable. It's, it's too risky. To what Talk. Alexander was saying – I myself haven't been able to go to a physical convention in many years because healthy people are getting sick at conventions far too easily. I have a, I'm immunocompromised, so I haven't been able to go to a physical convention in years. I've been playing online and finding ways to do it, which is probably why I've been able to adapt that model and try and you know be of assistance in this current time. But I think it's uh, it's something that I definitely agree. More and more people are going to have trouble going to a convention. I want to point out that because of the shock of the coronavirus situation, you know, at first there wasn't uh, much movement to use VPT, but once it, really, really, it sunk in that we're in this for the long haul, I've seen groups, I've seen individuals and groups that I know that are, were hostile to VTT, like the hmm. AD&D guys at Knights and Nays. I mean, they're, they're good guys if you don't if you treat, you know, look at them through the bars, but, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, they're good guys. Um, they're just really focused on AD and D and OD and D, but they, most of them wouldn't touch VTT with a 10 foot pro, but now they're actually trying it. And what's really important is they still probably prefer face to face, but they know it's not the evil. It's not as bad as they imagine it to be. It actually yeah. can work, and it's fun. Yeah, I've been running my Earthdawn campaign on voice chat for many years now. Um, after we left Chicago and moved down to Dallas, um, we had so many people that wanted to keep playing, we just moved it onto Skype, and from there to Google Hangouts, and now it's running on the Facet Discord. Um, I think Discord has been a very timely thing. Uh, we've seen the rise of Discord as a platform for gaming for people who don't need a, a virtual tabletop, who are more theater of the mind. Uh, and I think we've got really a tremendous opportunity here to leverage things like Discord. Uh, it's just a matter of getting the word out to everybody and getting the word out to people who might be interested and maybe haven't tried this before. I mean, I used to game on conference calls, especially when I was grounded. So this is just the next step in the evolution. Yeah. One concern I have, though, is that a big appeal of gaming for my friends, most of whom work in the tech industry or the video game industry, has been the actual getting together as friends and not looking at a screen and being together and rolling right. dice and the physicality of it. And I worry if we embrace too much the virtual tabletop, we lose our big competitive advantage over video games, um, you know, where you can already sort of play online with your friends and just have a shared virtual experience. Let me so, ask you this. How long it takes you to make a quake level 
if you start from scratch? Oh, that takes a while. <laughs> sure. My Listen, point I... exactly. And how long will it take you to throw a one-level dungeon together? Me? More than a quake level because I'm anal. But that's your choice. You could oh, I'm just ki- throw I'm it kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Okay, but that's that's the advantage of tabletop over video games. In, that's in the, the advantage part. of tabletop for the DM over video games. Well, I mean, you give me a crossword puzzle, I'll make I, it dungeon level. Well, I, it's, I, it's, I, it's I, even on the on the player side because the video game you can only do what the game allows you to do. I mean, I can I just played World of Warcraft because a friend said, "Hey, Rob, why don't you get on?" And I have. I just got cable internet, so my internet zooms all over it. There was nothing to download. So I got on, and I went to a tavern. I couldn't move the mugs. I couldn't throw a chair. I couldn't do anything. All I could do is walk up, talk to the NPC, buy from this NPC, or get a quest from this NPC. And if I click on this guy, he'll just sprout stuff at me. But with tabletop, tabletop, though, I mean, it was pretty, but with tabletop, I could have actually interacted with all that. Yeah, with tabletop. Uh, and with tab- thanks, <laughs> uh, and with tabletop, you also have the added experience. You don't even through video or through. I prefer video over text. You definitely gain a major level through video because you can do the gestures, you can do voices, you can throw yourself okay. into it. In a video game, you can't be making those voices, especially. I mean, even when you're, you know, let's say playing an FPS and you're talking to people on your team and whatnot. If you start making voices, they're gonna think you're insane. At a table where, at a table for a tabletop role-playing game, you can play a Birdman that you're squawking or whatever, and people will think you're totally fine. I think there is still a large level of interaction at a in a video conference game, provided that people are participating because once again um for unlike video games tabletop role-playing games are what you put into it is what you get out of it whereas video games it's much less so to let's be very honest video games i love video games but it is very much more streamlined like rob was saying there's a finite limitations and also you could seg from face to face to to vtt so for example in the new normal you don't want to get together often but you could still get together because whatever the corrective measures they put in for the virus, the vaccine, or it just you know died down. So what you could do is you can run your week-to-week with the VTT, and then once a month or once a year, you get together and play in face-to-face because you're doing the same thing, using the same material. It's just the means by you communicate is different. And so it's easy to... Because we've done this. I've done this with my group. I've been playing VTT since 2009. And there's been... I I, I love tabletop games as much as anyone. You know, I spent most of my career in the video game industry, but tabletop is what I love. But I really think we're whistling past the graveyard if we genuinely believe that a future society, hypothetical at this point, where human interaction becomes more and more virtual, is going to sustain tabletop gaming the way in-person interaction does. I, I I I simply think you guys are wrong. Like the the advantages of video games are so strong in that area relative to tabletop. Tabletop has an enormous advantage in the first person chemistry that you cannot get. And if that gets taken away, I think we will see a serious decline in our market share. So will it board games. Different. So will card games. Yeah, well, I, I I we already get we already got well. 
I maybe I don't know about board games or card games, but RPGs already got crushed by video games back in the nineties. I, I agree we have been crushed, but just because you've been crushed once doesn't mean that COVID couldn't crush us even more. Yeah, well, we're going to have to disagree. Oh. I mean, I mean, it just... Okay, most people disagree with me. That's why I'm an outcast on the internet. I like I... you. Yeah, <laughs> Thank I... you. <laughs> I, think, I think there are points from both sides. I'm not... Yeah disagreeing with you outright but i think that and because i know firsthand how small of a piece of a pie the gaming community the gaming industry has in comparison to everything else it is a shrinking pie uh, it is a shrinking slice that keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and this is certainly not helping it's not helping anyone for you know any industry but i think that once again it's a matter of how do we pivot how do we make sure that we keep it alive because it's up to us those that are passionate to bring in new people to keep the industry going uh and who love it enough because is it, is it smaller? go rob is it smaller i think it's good I, I from what i've been i mean before the covid you know wizards were posting some of their best numbers i mean we were fad i mean everybody was talking about it on television we were suddenly popular which is and, unusual for this hobby and we still and as in the whole industry, um, looking at the biggest numbers in our industry, there's, we're still not making that one big company is still not making as much as a subsidiary of, let's say, uh, of, of said video game companies. Let's say Activision, a subsidiary of another company who is a subsidiary of a third company, and it makes Call of Duty. They, they make more in a quarter than WotC. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but... I think in the day, in the age of the internet, it isn't about having absolute market share. It's about having the minimal viable number of people to keep, because somebody mentioned, I, I forgot, I'm sorry, I forgot who it was, but, you know, old pe as time goes on, people drop out, people drop in. So as long as that number is either at an equilibrium or slightly positive, we're going to be okay. The rest of the world can like what they like. We will still get the material because it's cheaper to make them more. It's easier to distribute them. And it's now easier to meet. And we still have the old ways of uh, of uh, doing things if we want to get together face-to-face -to -face after this situation is over, of course. I mean, I think yes yeah. and no, right? Part of the value of being a gamer is that, uh, and a specifically a tabletop gamer, is that you're part of a network of people who understand the experience and enjoy the joke and get the t-shirt and have the shared cultural references. Uh, let me just give a, a, an anecdotal example from my own life. My father professionally ran an international stamp business. He imported rare foreign stamps from the Middle East and he resold them to collectors via auction. And uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, stamp collecting was a really big hobby that people did. It is virtually dead today, not just at the level of the hobby, but at the level of anybody like my father trying to run a small business to that hobby, simply because the technology changed such that none of the next generation really even understood the point. And I worry 
that for video games or for tabletop games, that could happen to us if we aren't careful. And COVID is a strike against us. I'm not saying it's inevitable, but I'm saying we should take it into account and we, we need to figure out what we can do to get back to human interaction as soon as we can. How to pivot and uh, accommodate for the changes that we need to make, whether it's you know physical or whether it's increasing market shares elsewhere, but driving awareness to the hobby and driving new new blood as much as we can and such like that and you know it's remarkable sometimes you make somebody uh, you bring somebody in and 15 years later you cross paths with them randomly and they're like i remember you teaching me this game mm -hmm. you know that 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 type of reward there's nothing like that reward i had that happen to me uh three years ago someone who was literally a kid that walked into a game store I was hanging out at. I was playing war games. He comes up to me, um, uh, comes up to our table and says, what are you playing? I said, oh, we're playing Mordheim. And do you want to play? Do you want to learn? I taught him how to play. So three years ago, I met him after 15 years. He said he remembered me because I was the one that turned him into a gamer. Now, <laughs> I was now, like, ooh. Now, Alex, let me ask you this question. How compatible do you view a VTT versus playing face-to-face -face versus playing World of Warcraft or Elder Scrolls versus face-to-face? -face? See, to me, a VTT and face-to-face -face are, they're, they're the same thing just with a different presentation, while Elder Scrolls and World of Warcraft and tabletop, they're not the same kind of game at all. I mean, they're role-playing games, but they're very different types of role-playing games and not compatible at all. So I guess if you're asking me, do I think they're product substitutes? I, I think my answer is I, I do think they're product substitutes. They're not perfect substitutes for each other. You know, they're salt and pepper. But I would say if I look at even my own group and anecdotally, if I say... I'm going to run a live game. Let's all get together and play in person. I get eight players. If uh, And if I say I'm going to run a game online, maybe I get three or four. And I know those other guys, I know them, they're playing video games because they'd rather play. So, so in other words, if you think of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, I worry that the Maslow hierarchy of gaming is tabletop, then video game, then virtual tabletop. So well, my... something... Oh, go, Rob. Okay, so my experience was Ooh. I had a group of friends. We played face-to-face. -face. We prefer face-to-face because -face we got all our little doodad, dwarven forge, and what, miniatures and stuff like that. But however, our life circumstances changed. So now one's living in Louisiana, one's living there, one's living there, and there's only two of us left back in my rural northwest Pennsylvania town. So we switched to VTT, and it allowed us to continue to hang out. And when when they came home, one or more came home, we would get together for faith. The issue there, and I agree with you, but the issue there is that relies on first having had those ties that bind in person when you were younger. And if the young generation never has that, they're not going to have that bind. Like, I don't, I don't plan to get together with the people I've only ever met virtually 15 years ago in the same way that I plan to get together with the people that I knew in person 15 years ago. I will say that that's not true for everyone. Fair, uh, fair. That, but... I, in fact, uh, 
the MMO scene and the MMO life has created a lot of lifelong bonds amongst a very large community. And before COVID hit, I knew people who would actually who actually would meet up multiple times a year because they met in an MMO. Uh, so you know you can build bonds in other ways. Yeah, I have two friends but, that I've only met online that are but like I think that. It's harder. I will put it this way. Um, I only met Aldo Regalado, who is the author of Supers, uh, Supers, sorry, co-author of Supers Revised Edition. I met him online. We became such good friends that when he was in Seattle, Brandon and I drove eight hours to go see him and hang out with him for a day. I know people who do that from with people who they've met online. They will fly across the country. I have a friend in Michigan who uh, who is willing to who flies across country to meet and hang out with people because he can afford it while others can't. You guys are, in a way, you're, you're making my point for me, which is you're demonstrating that to you, the meaning of a real relationship is that you're meet, meeting them face to face. Well, but you're also saying that you can't have that same bond. I'm saying you can because you don't see them that often, but they're willing to go, go out of their way. Yeah, the meeting, and most of the time you're hanging the out online. And the meeting, the meeting happens because circumstances conspire to make it possible. Of course, you're going to meet the face to face. Why not? Yeah. Uh, okay, guys. Uh, listen. Yeah, I, I would be happy to take a gentleman's bet. Let's all reconvene on this point in ten years and see who was right. Okay, but I will concede you this, Alex. There, are, I could now that you talked about it a little more. I do see for some people this totally not working at all. I have met, because I work at making software for metal cutting machines, and I have to deal with sales a lot, and I know there are some salesmen who right now are struggling with the whole online bit, not because they're technically inept, because it's just not their thing. They need to be in front of you to do their magic, so to speak. Okay. So, as I mentioned, Alex, I'm not against you. I think there are points on both sides. But I think something that isn't being factored in is that in reality, many pe people have different personality types. Some people are introverted. Some people are extroverted. And no one is completely extroverted or completely introverted, despite what we want to say. But the people who are more extroverted, they're going to have a heck of a time trying to adapt to an online life. While people who are more introverted are more okay with being locked up in their house for a while. So that's always going to be a factor. If you're more extroverted, if your group is more extroverted, you need that physical uh, interaction. If you are, your group is more introverted, it's probably going to be a lot easier to adapt to an online scenario. It is different for everyone, just like not every single game is for everyone. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many games. No, I, I, I agree with all of that. So I think we mostly agree on many factors. It's just implementation and how to pivot. Different people see it differently, which that's the way the world works. If we all saw things the same way, it'd be boring as heck, personally, in my opinion. Well, hey, guys, uh, I don't want to totally cut you off here, um, but we've got about 15 minutes left. And I was wondering if we wanted to try to hit on one more topic before we move into product promotion. Sure. Who's there? So. Yes, please. How did we get that far? <laughs> I know one of my one of the things I was going to talk about is more than amply covered, so I'm good. Yeah. And anytime we talk about art, it takes a long time to get through that topic. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more relaxed this time. The last time I, uh, we pushed through five topics uh, in one night, it was a little little crazy. Um, but I think, Andrew, I, I think you had one that you wanted to transition to maybe. Well, uh, if I'm correct, I'm next in the initiative. Uh, so, yeah, the one about uh, how does 2020 compare to how we saw it in the 80s? And one of the things that was missing from your list was Shadowrun. And just speaking for FASA, we did not intend Shadowrun to be a how-to manual. We meant it to be a warning. Yes! (laughs) You know? Listen, I was devastated when 2012 happened and nobody turned into an elf, orc, or dragon. Yeah, the Day of the Dragons was a sad day in our household as well, let me tell you. But uh, the, um, you know, looking toward the, uh, from the 80s toward the current era, um, some of the games, Artel Saurian, Cyberpunk 2020, Shadowrun, were somewhat eerily prescient. Yeah. Um, as to how some of the dystopias, have developed. Now, we are are not seeing corporate arcologies, and we're not really seeing extraterritoriality at this point, but we're getting awfully close to some of it, and, you know. I think we're we're not seeing extraterritoriality in the developed world, but if you look at it from the point of view of, say, India, where you have a, a, a pharmaceutical company just tests drugs on its population and you know a hundred thousand people get sick and they're like "Eh." like from india's India's perspective the mega corporation is pretty freaking extraterritorial india has more zaibatsu than megacorp um i don't know if you've been (laughs) i don't know if you've been there and there's a gradation there i'm sorry alice can, can i can I go on? Oh, no, or do you no, have you go, you have to go. Um, you look at some uh, at a conglomerate like Tata, and you know there's yeah they have the they're they're high, extraordinarily powerful, but they're also highly diversified and they're covering a lot of aspects. And so Hyderabad isn't really a Tata arcology, but there are areas of the city that. Tata pretty much controls because they own the the land, they built the buildings with their own construction company, and then they moved their their companies into those buildings and their workers into the apartment buildings, and it becomes very much of a company town. Um, I think we're seeing more company towns than arcologies. On the other yeah. hand, you have companies that have some pretty massive campuses, Camp Gemini's campus in Bengaluru is a classic example because they have such a hell of a private security force. Mm-hmm. One of the classic tropes of cyberpunk is the private security force that is that replaces the civilian police or is more effective than the civilian police for whatever reason. About the third day I was at the camp, uh, the campus in Bengaluru, um, I commented to a, uh, a co-worker that 
the security guard, were, were, were they hiring a family business? Because the security guys all seem to have kind of a resemblance thing going on. He laughed and said, they're all from the same tribe of Gurkhas. <laughs> and I blinked and said, wait a minute. The security force are all Gurkhas? And he just nodded. And I'm like... Right, I'm glad I've been being polite with these guys. Holy shit. I mean, the, you know, you look up badass in the dictionary and there's a photo of a Gurkha. Right. You know. So, I, 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 I think with cyberpunk, most cyberpunk settings miss is the the effect of technology has on productivity and what that means of what that impacts on the worth of the individual. If somebody can have a factory in their home, there's power in that. And, you know, I mean, sure, you can suborn the government so that they enforce IP laws, but the, but the reality, the physics of it is I can have a machine in my house that's a factory. Now, today in 2021, that 3D printer can do useful things, but it's not quite on the level of, you know, some of the downtown shops in my town or, you know, the, the bigger factory or the places that you've been talking about in India. However, you know, it's marching on and people are getting more and more productive on an individual level. And uh, so that is something that I don't never... That that's what never sat well with me for cyberpunk, especially you know starting in the nineties. I was like, you know, I could see some of this stuff happening, but others they're just not really taking that into account. It's interesting to me that you guys are all more optimistic about how society developed than I am. Like, I, <laughs> I, 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 I look at how we ended up, and I think we got all the worst parts of cyberpunk and none of the technological advancements. None of the we cool didn't, stuff. We didn't oh, get the man. mental control of computers. We didn't get the fully immersive VR. There's no flying cars. There's no androids. There's no moon base. There's no Mars exploration. Uh, there's no human cloning. Oh. There's no bionic limbs. Like, we with no cyber eyes. We didn't get jack shit. It's terrible. Like the well, showrunner should well, be totally fired because he has completely <laughs> failed on the 2020 season. Well, I think what happened was we ran out of special effects budget. <laughs> right. I, uh, I, 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 so good science fiction, I think, hits on human behavior first, right? Because it's the hu it's it's part of that juxt juxtaposition of. Um, got new technologies that are out there, and uh, but people don't necessarily change all that much. And sure, their behaviors may be altered by the technologies, but their motivations and things don't, right? So, uh, yeah, we did get a lot of the worst stuff, we did get all the cool, fun toys, I think, because um, the first thing that's going to come is that you see more of the, the human behavior. And then we start to look at the things that, but, but let's be honest, some of it's very positive. I mean, we do use technology now um, to help people. Um, so it's, it's easy to dwell on the negative, but there is a, there is a, uh, there is a positive human aspect as well. When we like crowdsource things to go help somebody out or something like that. Um, but uh, the, those, those cool things like the flying cars, I mean, that stuff's expensive, right? And so uh, it's sort of like the, you know, they, 
when the Europeans uh, first sailed across uh, to to um, the Americas, um, you could argue, you know, how many centuries it took because people talk about, you know, when the first Europeans came and, and that's debated and talked about. Um, but it took centuries, right, for it to become profitable. And then it became sort of the norm, but the behavior patterns were already there, you know, for what the what? impact in the future would be. And I think that's kind yeah, of where my, we are. Uh, I would argue we're, we're in a technological decline. Like, I, I think we're, we're eating the seed corn of the last wave of, of breakthrough with mobile and internet technology. But like when What's Cyberpunk was written, you could have a commercial flight across the Atlantic on a Concorde uh, in, and, and fly at Mach 1 and get to London to New York in a couple hours. You can no longer do that. You just, you just can't. The we technology actually wasn't very valid is the problem with the Concorde. The whole yeah. I whole agree with you. It it wasn't it wasn't out. valid, but everyone predicted it would be because that had well, up till that point been the way the curve moved. You started off with the expensive novel technology, you figured it out, it became profitable. But all of a sudden in the nineteen nineties and two thousands, we just kind of would hit that and be like, I guess we're just not gonna do this anymore. Let me well, put this out turned... to you. Sorry. We went and became more consumerist, uh, a, a stronger consumer base in the fact that they started churning out garbage that garbage will that be thrown away in thrown under away. two years. And that is where they're and making money. They're making and so that's money. where they started that's focusing started their, research their research rather than concords. They said, hey, let's make it so that every three months you have to upgrade your phone or you're going to feel like it's lagging the heck out of you. And as for the arcology statement earlier, if you don't think that we are heading towards having that arcology issue, uh, an arcology issue, you should go look at uh, Oracle Campus and you should go look at Apple Park in Silicon Valley. And there are a few other companies that you can go look at. And the amount that they try and keep you on campus with all possible amenities, including shopping, there is also a hotel um, in um, in oh gosh, in the um, islands, in the Pacific Islands, there's a hotel with a swimming pool that's the size of uh, a football field on top of the roo rooftop. And they have an ecology, uh, arcology underneath to basically keep their staff from leaving. They have, uh, you go and research that and it is incredibly crazy. Some Man. of this goes back I, to the Victorian era. If you've seen the series, The Paradise, it's very historically accurate. A lot of the big stores in London provided uh, an employee meal area and, and an actual dining hall for the employees, and then also provided housing in the store building for the shop girls so that they could keep track of their shop girls and make sure they weren't going to run off of some guy or turn up pregnant or whatever. They, they lived in almost... Um, but almost a, a nunnery, wow. and, and uh, to some extent, it's it's th this is all easily documented that uh, we've been in this sort of internal containment, this control of the employee uh, from from sunup to sundown for oh gosh, you know, 150 years easily. Well, here's the thing: first of all, none of you are thinking big enough. The world is a huge place. Take for me example. I live in a rural northwest Pennsylvania 
town. I work for a manufacturing. We make metal cutting machines for the H2C machine. Our machine is one of the, it's not every machine is like this, but our particular machine, the difference between how sheet metal shops were doing it 30 years ago and how they're doing it now with our machine is a thousand fold. They are a thousand times more productive with our machine. Now, how this has impacted the industry, basically, nobody gets laid off. What they do is they take on bigger jobs than they could handle. Instead of quoting out a thousand foot of duck to be installed in a building for heating and air conditioning, they can now quote up 10,000 feet of duck. They're only really limited by the, the size of the installer crew. There used to be, but it used to be the limit was actually cutting the duck out of the sheets of metal and then putting them together. And Alex, a lot of the advances in technology are not flashy. They're not high energy application. A Concord is a flashy high energy contour. Like, for example, the, what I did this week was my company was able to uh, open uh, by, uh, we, we luckily we have a cavernous uh, shop, so we were able to take our uh, programming staff and scatter to all these little corner rooms in our facility so nobody was in six feet of each other. And we use Discord all the time. So this week, I worked on a machine where we took somebody's old, uh, what's it called, an angle machine. It takes a piece of angle iron, which looks like an L shape, punches holes in it and cuts it to length. We upgraded with the new control and we improved its efficiency and accuracy by tenfold. And that's on top of what the guy did, what the company did when they sold the guy the machine 15 years ago when he bought that thing. So. Rob, I, I, I totally agree with you that, that we're having these sort of advancements in productivity and things, but these are all these are all essentially quantitative changes, right? And you focus on that kind of efficiency uh, when you're not doing the big innovative breakthroughs. Like if well, you look at big well, no, 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 no. It's, it's not just about innovative breakthroughs. I cited the elevator principle earlier. Is anybody familiar with that? Yes. I think I've heard this in a different phrase in a different way, though. The elevator principle is when you have a technological development that actually changes the way things are done. If you brought somebody from the 1830s to New York City, they would look at these huge buildings and assume that people lived in them and they worked in them and that there were farms on some of the floors because nobody would want to walk up and down all those goddamn stairs. But you bring in the elevator which was this, this one adv uh, develop technological development, and it changes the way you build your city. Um, trying to predict that sort of event is extremely difficult in science fiction because effectively you're introducing a black swan into your world. When, you do, when that happens in reality, when the elevator, invented everybody looks at it and says well that's a wild idea we can do all sorts of stuff with this but if you bring something like that into your cyberpunk uh, game the players are all going to go yeah right and be highly derisive of you online unless 
the thing happens in real life later. In which case, Andrew, let me, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this question. In, and it, we'll ask for everyone. I'm, I'm really curious. In your opinion, relative, let's say, let's say the time frame 1960 to 2020 or the time frame 1900 to 1960, which had more elevators? I'm going to go with uh, the earlier period um, just because I know where I, I have a feeling where this is going. So 1900 to 1960, you saw more elevators being created for that society than in the most recent 60 years. I disagree. I mean, it was only. I, mean, I agree with Andrew. But, 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 you know, a lot of the buildings that use elevators were built before 1960. We had a an explosion of skyscrapers in the, in the period before 1960 because there was this new technology and it changed the way architecture was done. Now we take it for uh, for granted. Andrew, I, maybe I mis maybe I misstated my question. My thing is elevator like breakthroughs is what I mean. The Falcon Nine. The Falcon Nine happened because there was a guy named Elon Musk who made his money on the internet, okay? During the time he was making his money uh, on the internet, there was these bunch of small aerospace companies that were experimenting with way-out ideas for uh, rockets, but they were all undercapitalized because we had Lockheed, you had Boeing, you had Grumman, you know, the traditional guys doing their thing. And but what they were, these small rocket companies were doing in the in the early 2000s, they were leveraging computers, uh, CPUs. They were getting smaller, they were getting powerful, and they were doing things in control. But if they just weren't, they didn't have the capital to make it through. But Elon Musk, by the time he was ready, after he made his bucks, he saw what these guys were doing. He had an interest in rocket. He knew what the computer technology was. It was even better in the late 2000s. He put a team together that took all of that together. And if you look at the specs for the Merlin, uh, for the Merlin engines and the Falcon 9, it's not that special. But because he was willing to experiment and because he had everything under a fine-tuned uh, control that never existed before because of the, uh, the advances in, in software, he was able to, for the first time, make a not only a rocket that could land on his tail like God and Heinlein intended, he could make it if that was affordable and cheap and do it over and over again. You know, it's just, it's just, it's smartphones, 2010. Before 2010, we have, we have cell phones, and they were kind of making their way. But all of a sudden, because Steve Jobs figured out how to make a beautiful smartphone, it just exploded everywhere. I mean, you look at something that was going on in 2000, a TV show. And Rob, I, I, I wish I had your optimistic view of life, man. Uh, I think I think I'm Cicero to your uh, I don't know to your Augustus or something because I just think we're doomed. Like, I, I, <laughs> well, I, okay, I, I'll I, give I, you a doomed scenario. I, I really, I really think our, our rate of technological acceleration has actually reversed, and and we're on you know we're on the backslide. I think so.
Well, we'll see in 10 years when uh, when Elon is flying Starship and you can book a trip to the moon. Probably caught you 10 gram, but... You think so? You think we'll have commercial moon flight in I... 10 years? That's a good. That's a bet I'm willing to take. So I think that I'm someone who keeps an eye on technological news, and I have for a very long time. I think that it really depends on the technological department you're looking at. And for the standard consumer, a lot of things uh, are going to be viewed as stagnating, and that's very true. Like I said, it's because there is a rise in consumerism on technologically based things. So instead of turning out uh, greater advances, they're just trying to turn out the next smartphone. You have an iPhone 6, make sure you, you, know, you get an iPhone 7 in three months. Look at the number of lines and such. But that doesn't mean that there aren't advances happening some of the advances happening are you know, are not being applied is the problem uh there are and one of the best places uh to actually be allowing us to continue to grow on the technology basis is kickstarters and crowdfunding because a lot of these startups that 10 or 15 years ago would have gotten taken by a big megacorp and their invention would have been buried. They are now able to produce and actually still create technological advances that are, can drive us forward. And I think that's where we need to focus instead is pay attention. Uh, also, if you're talking about the fact that we are not actually trying to go to the moon and such like that. Well, don't forget that our president just authorized us to start mining the moon for resources, which personally, for my personal uh, perspective, is a pretty terrible thing to do. But anyways, we wouldn't be doing that if there isn't still growth. It's just that the growth being applied versus the growth being uh, actualized is at a different meter. And people see it differently as a result. I, I'm trying to basically be very careful in what I say on the subject because I try to be very, I try to stay away from politics as much as I possibly can in right. life. And this is a topic that can easily get very political very quickly. Sure. Uh, it's not, it's not political. It's not political to me at all. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's systematic. We, you know, we had a huge breakthrough in our civilization. We exploited the low hanging fruit of, of scientific and engineering advance. We made the mistake uh, and you see it in our science fiction, we made the mistake of thinking that what was exponential would remain exponential, and it's not. Reality is S-curves, and we've hit, we've, we, we've, hit, uh, we've hit the part of the S where it goes flat. Oh, so I Alex, mean, I'm sorry, I, go ahead. Sorry, I just mean that the topic of 2020 versus 1980 and what is expected and what became reality is very possibly political if you're not careful where you, where you oh, oh yeah sure 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 yeah 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 so yeah, alec what, what i going into politics but that's another uh, thing entirely well hey so guys. Alex, just just, just huh? i'll just leave you with one thing what we're go what's going to happen when everybody has a factory in their home have you read makers by cory doctorow yeah no, I, don't I haven't no. If you have not read Cory Doctorow's Makers, I think he was off base on a couple of things. But uh, the idea of universal 3D printing uh, and what Disney does with it in the novel is very realistic. I think that's very much what uh, part of what would happen. 
Docro talks a lot about a lot of things, Alaric, but what it amounts to is everybody, including you, will have a factory in their home. Okay. What will happen? You have, a 3D print, you have a 3D printer in your home that can download and churn out stuff while you sleep. You subscribe to Disney, and, every, <laughs> and you, uh, about once a week, you wake up and your room has been redecorated in the latest Disney scheme. <clears throat> well, there's a big difference between you can download and 3D print, and then somehow the AI redecorates my room, I just want to say, right? Because, like where I have my stuff and how I have it organized. Like, that's not something, that's non-trivial. Robot. So, robot. And you, the robots you just... are non-trivial, right? Like, we have been failing to create that sort of AI for a long time. It's so not, I, a, it's, it's not, not AI. It's just an expert system that reorganizes, and it organizes all your stuff the way Disney thinks your stuff ought to be organized. So your you guys are way Disney. underestimating how difficult that part of it is. The 3D printing is great. I believe it. I think gun control is dead because you can print guns in your house now. I'm with you on that, right? I just think you're, you're gross. You're, then you're, you're doing the far side thing where it's like step one, step two, step three, a miracle happens, step four. Yeah, no, I've been in IT for 30 years and have been watching how this stuff is working. And you don't need AI. All you need are expert systems. Expert systems uh, is the last time you had another word for AI. It's not. No, AI, AI you is guys are confusing general AI with AI. No, really not. No. I, I'm yeah, gonna, you are. I'm going to vehemently disagree with you. Uh, you're putting guys, work with friendly. this stuff. Guys, let's keep it friendly here. Yeah, this is what I work okay. with. I work in motion control, which uses expert systems to uh, calibrate the motion to what you want it to do. I, I Listen, I, I hear you guys. We can fight about what the word AI means if you want to. I think that's a stupid argument to have. We all mean the same thing. And I think you guys are grossly overestimating how quickly something like that's going to be possible. We don't. Again, I'm perfectly happy to talk about this again in 10 years and see who was right. Okay. Well, we have a time deadline, though, unfortunately. So we can't debate this further. If if you guys would like, uh, yeah, we can move into uh, uh, we can move into the uh, product uh, placement and sort of plug our stuff now. If you uh, sounds like a great idea. Yeah, yeah, because there's five of us on here, five of y'all. Uh, Does I recall usually, we go in inverse initiative? Yeah, yeah, we go in reverse initiative. So Alex, tell us about uh, what you're working on. Well, uh, my big recent project has been Ascendant, which is a superhero RPG, and um, it did very, very well. It's my most successful Kickstarter since Dwimmer Mount, so that was thrilling. I'm going to be following up with it with an actual comic book line based on the world. I've partnered with um, a comic book artist company, and uh, I'm already got the script being developed, so that's super exciting. Uh, because lots of people read comic books and it's a whole new source of revenue for Autark. Uh, we've just launched a new Patreon for the Ascendant brand to run alongside the Patreon for the Axe brand. I'll link that in the channel. I think you're up next, Rob. Um, COVID kind of 
messed up my plan when uh, Dry Tree had to shut down the maps. I was working on the Wild North. It's still in the works, but I'm also working on an adventure, which is a book-only thing. So look for that, hopefully, within a month, couple couple weeks or so. But uh, the wider, my Judges Guild material is still for sale. I'm not paying them any royalties uh, as it was waived in lieu of my fees for the, the remaining maps, and I'm only halfway toward that amount. So, And we agreed on an amount. So if you're still interested in picking some of it up, uh, it's available. And that's it. Okay, uh, I guess it rolls it to me. Um, I'm going to promote Vinlicha tonight. Um, this is my indie project, uh, separate from the, the work I normally do for FASA for 1879, which is the steampunk successor to uh, Earth Dawn and replaces Shadowrun in our cosmology. Vinlicha is using the dynamic balances mechanic. This is a new mechanic that I've developed um, after 30 years of writing role-playing games. I'm finally bringing out my own mechanic and my own game world. Um, this is all developed pretty much from scratch. The playtest of the sample adventure for the game book uh, will be not tomorrow, but uh, next Saturday, the 25th, on the Babies with Knives Discord. And there will be pre-gens available, and um, we will play through it, assuming that I have enough people show up uh, for it. There is a sign-up in the campaign um, scheduling channel on Babies with Knives, and I'm posting the Patreon itch and some other stuff for Dynamic Balances. Um, the uh, This is a, a Patreon-driven system. And I've got a, I already got a site set up on itch to to put it through. This will be distributed on, on a Creative Commons license. Um, I'm also doing some stuff uh, uh, for Minecraft. Uh, I have a uh, blog that I've been where I've been doing a, a bunch of analysis of the game and looking at uh, some of the political ramifications of it. Glenn, I believe hey. you're up. Yep, uh, got so many, uh, things going on right now. I'll just narrow it down to uh, if you want to check out my YouTube channel, um, I'm talking about the Mastara setting, which I've actually got some progress on getting my book out, uh, as well as doing reviews of old games. I just finished Death Watch and Bullwinkle and Rocky, which, if you want to play a game with hand puppets, that's pretty much your only option. Well, okay then. <laughs> if you're done, I guess that's me. Uh, as always, I'm going to plug Babies with Knives. Come watch our videos, learn about games, and come to our Discord and play games. Andrew's going to GM his new playtest game. We have teaching tables of all sorts of systems going on all the time. If you have an obscure game you want to learn or play, 
try us, you know, maybe somebody in the community will know. And the other thing I do want to do a quick plug on is um, Fantasy Network, also known as uh, Zombie Orpheus Entertainment, is going to be doing a con uh, next weekend, ZoeCon. And it's and going to be a virtual, be a virtual con, con talking about, about what, what we were doing with, dealing with earlier. They're going to be actively trying to create the lean in and lean out experience, working with people from very large scopes of cons, trying to create a long-term infrastructure for online gaming that will allow you to be as, uh, not just for gaming, but for a convention setting for seminars, panels and such, to be as interactive in the, um, in the moment as possible. Uh, and this is gonna be basically the first con that they're setting up the infrastructure. Uh, so I'm dropping the link in there, looking for uh, people to come and participate as players for or GMs for games, or if you want to attend uh, panels. In case you didn't know, Zombie Orpheus is the people who are the people who made uh, the gamers uh, video ga uh, video uh, many many years ago. So uh, yeah, they're the creators of the gamers. And I'm plugging them because I got pulled into uh, helping them out. And, uh, well, I'm, uh, all right, are you done, Lala? Sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm Brian, uh, the host of Lost Relic Industries. Uh, it's pretty much uh, me and my wife. And... Uh, we've created a tabletop RPG in a fantasy setting called Swords and Shaman of Songard, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's about um, uh, primitive Stone Age elves uh, in a world that's um, inhabited by prehistoric creatures and monsters from space and Iron Age human uh, barbarians and all that all fun that. stuff. So uh, uh, we're posting some art in here in the channel tonight. Um, if you like, you know, woolly mammoths and, you know, bronze swords and stuff like that, check us out. Uh, the player's book right now has about 80% of the artwork. I've got over 40 images right now of, uh, it, I believe the count was like 52 images that are going to be in the player's book. And we'd actually yeah. finished uh, doing the layout on the cover and the back of the book as well. So I'm super excited about that and just like trying you know, like I'm on the edge of my seat right here while you guys have been talking about art tonight. So uh, maybe we'll get that out here soon. And then Glenn can uh, tell us how the art was so much better than the rest of it. I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's us. And uh, I'd like to go ahead and open this up uh, for anybody in the audience if they'd like to ask any questions. Uh, and otherwise, we'll just sit here and chat for a few minutes. So if anybody out there listening or watching the channel would like to ask uh, any of our uh, guests or anybody uh, questions about tonight. And don't be shy. You can type it in the chat, too, if you don't feel like speaking. And I want to know where you guys get your happy pills, because I, I am, am like, like looking at the world, and you guys are looking at the world, and whew, my glass is not even half full, and I feel like Rob has got like a full bottle of really tasty beverage. I'm like, man. <laughs> well, it's if you want to. Okay, so 
imagine you're making a setting for one of your, whether it's uh, superheroes like Ascendant or your fantasy world. And for a moment, instead of focusing on something like adventuring in tombs or fighting supervillains, you try to think of it as a real world with all of its complexity. Then you realize that you've been focusing only on a narrow slice. And that slice isn't the world. The world is so much bigger. And there are people with all kinds of stories. You know, you've got an Oracle campus sitting in San Francisco, I assume, in the Silicon Valley somewhere. But you also have 280 Meadow Street, the home that I grew up sitting on the same street with the same layout with the only thing pretty much different on the outside, at least. I haven't been inside it for years. It's the, the siding, the color of the siding. And yet, there are advances that touch me here, like the smartphone I'm carrying and the, most, and the equipment I work for and how easy it is for me to support our machine in Australia. The only thing we got to worry about is the goddamn time zone, but I can hop on that machine and fix it. So the world is a big place, and there's all these people there are horrible things happening in India. There are good things happening in India. And it's all happening at once. And people don't like shit happening to them. It might take them a while, but they're going to deal with the shit that's happening to them. And that's, to me, it's been the truth of, of history in the industrial age. So that's why that, that gives me optimism. I mean, the worst case scenario in my book is the advance in technology gets to the point where I can build a nuclear bomb or the viral or the genetic equivalent using, you know, uh, uh, easily to, to use genetic uh, biology equip, equipment that it's so devastating that one person essentially has the button on the existence of the human race. Then I would worry. But we're not there yet, so I'm not worrying about that. Listen, that's actually a really scary, um, a really scary phenomenon. There's no doubt. Like someone said earlier, that the biggest problem in the world is that wisdom doesn't keep up with advances in technology, and I, I really agree with that sentiment for sure. Um, uh, Ripple, 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 yeah, Ripple, I need yeah, to subscribe I, to your I, newsletter. Do you have a newsletter? Okay. Well, here's the thing to keep in mind, and this goes to why we don't have bionics. The reason why we don't have bionics, because it turns out so far, sticking stuff in our body is not a good idea. There's all kinds of issues with keeping stuff working in our body. Now, prosthetics mm -hmm. attaching to it, that's been going along better. But the traditional view of bionics, and the same with the... the uh, you know, we took a leap with the, uh, I think it's PCR technology. I, I keep getting the anachronism mixed up. Are you thinking of CRISPR? Yeah, CRISPR. So things yeah. took a huge leap. It caught the cost of doing genetic manipulation, went uh, down a lot with CRISPR. But as it turns out, CRISPR isn't quite a free lunch either. There are consequences. Yeah. You, you, you got to really work at it. You still got to work at it to make something viable outside of the CRISPR machine. There's, it just dropped at an order of magnitude. Things, 
you just, you know, things don't replicate, things die, things, you know, it's just not, a, it's, it made it easier, but not super easy. Yeah, I'm on the advisory board of a company called Entogenetics that uses CRISPR. And what they've been doing is transplanting the spider's uh, silk creation gene into uh, silkworms so that when the silkworms grow up, they now can produce spider silk rather than normal um, silkworm silk. So let me ask you this. How many, how many, what's their, I, I forgot the term for it, but how many silkworms they have to do that to before they yeah. actually get one that actually works? Well, what I was going to say is that they've now been doing this for eight years with hundreds of generations using the best technology you can, and they can't, they still can't get the silkworms to produce the silk the way they want. And, you know, you, it, it's exactly what you're saying. Right. Now they're well, producing something different, right? Exactly. What they're producing is better than normal silk in terms of what they were hoping to achieve because they were trying to make it for body armor, right? So that you could mass produce spider silk and use it for body armor. Um, and what they've got now is like silk that is a little bit tougher than normal silk, but it's not going to stop a bullet. So it's useless. Well, well, the point I'm talking about, okay, so they got something now, but how reliable is replicating that silkworm so they could have like a thousand of them producing this new, even slightly better one? That's the part point I they, said it. At, no, at this, at this point, so the, the silkworms that they have can reproduce and produce those same type of silkworms. The problem they're okay. having is getting the gene placed correctly enough to actually replace and, and create the type of silk they want to. Okay. They're getting a lot of hybrids. Understood. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Also, as far as bionics go, we deal with, uh, we're hearing every 10 years that this new material that we're using for hip replacement is poisoning the body as it wears down, or, you know, it's, or this new, uh, this new plate material that they're using to uh, pin arm together, to pin the bones in the arm together are destroying a person's body, etc. So right now they can't even figure out a material that won't poison the human body, much less make us bionic. You're so right. Yeah. 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 And the thing is, it's not simple either, because if you're 75 years old with a life expectancy of a 75 year old, then that's not so bad. I mean, if it gives you 10 more years of quality life. So there's all kinds of weird trade offs like that. I had to go through that with my father before he uh, in the in the couple of years before he passed away, because there were some things, some things he got that in the younger person wasn't advisable. For that matter, uh, I'm having uh, real problems with my teeth as I get older because I grew up in the 1960s and 1970s when silver amalgam fillings were the standard. And we now know that, first off, those are a bad idea because amalgam involves mercury. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. So I had all this mercury jammed into my teeth as a kid. And secondly, that type of filling degenerates over time. And now, and now at 57, all the fillings are falling out of my teeth. Oh, God. Well, not oh, just that. that. 
not just that, but Silverm Amalgam, uh, they started changing it and having higher mercury count in the 90s. So if you got fillings in the 90s, which I did, uh, it actually had a higher mercury count than it did in the 60s and 70s uh, or 80s. Uh, so I actually ended up dealing with mercury poisoning and issues a few years ago because I had a filling that decided to uber leak uh, oh, and self-destruct. So yeah, it's a real thing. Like we said, materials keep coming going this is the new best material put it in the body a few years and it's like oh um it's mm. causing them to die oh my yeah, God. Look at, uh, the uh breast implants that uh so many women had to have removed because they were breaking down and killing them mm -hmm. well it's oh like uh God. There are yeah. so, there's certain metals uh, like cobalt. They were it was supposed to be super strong for hip replacements, and they're finding that uh, it's breaking down in the body to like it's like breaking down into gross things, and it can cause dementia, it can cause seizures, it can cause all sorts of things. And for several decades, that was the material because it's strong; it's going to last forever. Oh, well, you know, we can go back uh, a little further, and let's talk about radium. Oh, my gosh, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, until we can find safe material, bionics not going to come anywhere near. Oh, bionics are, you know, they, you know they're going to happen. They're just going to be dangerous as hell, as you said, until we have provably safe materials, and that usually yeah. takes three or four generations of the technology, and then a longitudinal study, That's because it takes sometimes... Right. 20 or 30 years to realize, oh, yeah, that was a bad idea sticking that into people. Well, somebody's probably going to do it for cheap first, right? And then they'll have the study and then they'll bury the results and then say, well, how could we know until, uh, <laughs> and, and then 10, 20 years later, the lawyers will come out and jump onto that. And then, yeah, they'll move to a new material. And the only people who make a profit are the lawyers. But then that's, you know, true. That's been true for a very long time. Ever read Bleak House by Dickens? If you haven't read anything, if, you've, if the only Dickens you've ever read is Christmas Carol, you do not know how bitterly sarcastic that man could be. I never read uh, the Christmas, story, uh, Christmas Carol or, yeah, but I did read some of the other Dickens stuff, but I've never read what you said, so. Yeah, Bleak House is one I strongly recommend. It is Dickens indicting the Chancery Court system, and he had a personal loathing of uh, the financial court system. And it's just, it's, it's an amazing book. But it's, it delves into sort of what we've been talking, some of what we've been talking about, and the fact that this kind of crap has been going on for as long as, well, as long as there have been people and the idea of financial systems. You know, it's, 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 it's a thing. One of the sad things about being a historical researcher is you realize that we keep doing the same crap over and over again. I'm sorry, this is going in a downer direction. My apologies. Finally, yes, yes. <laughs> so, um, any more questions before Ryan shuts us all off, guys? Uh, all this and has happened before, and it will happen again. 
Can I, uh, this, this same Discord conversation has happened an infinite number of times. <laughs> well, I, I'm a strong believer that whenever I write, I'm simply channeling another reality. Uh, so therefore, I believe that every reality is possible and exists somewhere. <laughs> That's just the way I am. And I think I that, think that uh, given how given heated how things got, maybe got we should shake hands and answer. say niceties before we close. <laughs> so, oh. Oh, it's, it's it's all about the love for me. I, I'm not heated at anyone, honestly. I mean, I get excited I talking about technology, but yeah, I can and I can vehemently disagree with somebody without being disagreeable about it. I mean, just you know, I disagree with your opinion. I'm not attacking the person. Exactly. Awesome. As yeah. long as all as long as all the listeners know that we're good. Yeah, we're I'm good. Oh, screw yeah, it's, it's, just, it's part of my worldview. Is that What's going to happen in the future is everything and nothing. I mean, my house is likely going to be there for the next 50 years. But everything is going to change. Maybe in 50 years, it's going to have its own satellite dish pointed up to the internet and we'll have two gigabyte download speed, you know, which is completely different than what we have now. But William, well, you know, as cited earlier, William Gibson said, uh, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And that really, yeah, that's the thing I think about a lot. The, the fact that we have things that have achieved penetration into different areas of our lives that, and, and then we still have all this older stuff. I was, uh, I cited it earlier that uh, I was in San Antonio, Texas, and I was standing at a bus stop. I'm waiting for a bus. So ordinary city bus run by an internal combustion engine, and I'm going to pay for it with a little mag stripe paper ticket. And I'm standing there with my phone running the company's cloud storage system and assigning privileges on the cloud storage system on my phone from the bus stop. And I'm like, could this get any weirder? I mean, the only way it could get weirder is like if you're in India and you see one of these guys driving an ox cart while he's banging away on his phone. <laughs> and uh, Well, I will say the challenge for our kids, everybody's here, if, if you ever have kids, is it's going to be their challenge is that we're going to one day have a situation, probably not for a couple decades out, where things are so productive that one group or person can literally feed the rest of their community or house or clothes. What do you do then? It's a huge problem, Rob. I mean, like, RPGs. Like, one person can do it all. If you look back, think about, think about the horse, right? Like the horse used to be an indispensable part of farms. And then you didn't need horses anymore because machines could do it. And now there just aren't as many horses as there used to be. And you think, what's going to happen to people when you don't need people? I don't know. It, it seems like a downer. Um, oh, wow. burn, Bruce. Horses are delicious. Oh, wow. Oh, oh man! Gonna, so people? To... Is that is that your prediction, man? Oh, Bruce, man. you really are half empty, aren't you? Uh, Bruce took us to a whole new level of dark. I am outclassed. Yeah. And and I'm gonna have to close us on that note too because we're 
running a little past uh, time now. Um, so I guess, uh, yeah, <laughs> way to go. <laughs> um, this has been a great, uh, great show. I'm so glad so many of y'all uh, came on tonight. Um, this was really, this was just a whole lot of fun. Um, I hope you had as much fun as I did. And thank you all for coming on. Thank you for having, having us. us. We really yeah, thanks for having us. I had a blast, though. Uh, towards that the end, of that, awesome. yeah, that was. But, but towards the end of that debate, I kind of wish we did have the whole face to face that people were talking about earlier, because I think somebody would have table flipped, said, "Listen to my point," and I would have liked to have <laughs> table flipped. <laughs> uh, I really table flipping. I really think we need to have table flipping. Okay. Competitive table flipping, see how far the pieces go. We're in tabletop simulator, we can do it. Or I have a strength know, of seven. I'm going to lose. If you're basing it off the hurling the caber, it's how many times the table turns over before it hits the ground. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, good night, Craig. <laughs> good night. Good night. <laughs>